Just one additional announcement. We had our first Wednesday night this past week, and uh, it was great. And we look forward to many more this, this fall and, and into the winter. So join us for that Wednesday night. Come for the meal. We need uh, some to, to sign up to bring a meal or help provide that. So um, there's a sign-up sheet in the Narthex as well. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we have as a, as a body to get together in the middle of the week and do so many activities and enjoy that time of fellowship. This morning we're continuing in Malachi again this week. The prophet is located in our Bibles right before the book of Matthew, the last one in the list in the Old Testament. And we've seen over the last couple weeks what Malachi is doing, that he was sent to God's people a number of decades after their return from exile. The faith and their, their faith and their expectations and their confidence in what God was doing had dwindled and had declined. And so it was a time where God's people were disillusioned and ignoring him. And so Malachi was sent to call God's people back to their God. And Malachi is bringing this prophetic message in terms of a dispute between God and his people, as we've seen, that God makes a statement, God asks a question, and the people respond with this uh, kind of phrase that, in, but, but you say, God is putting the words in, their actions into their words, uh, into words, and, and then God is responding as the prophet does. So the foundation of God's relationship with his people is love, as we saw the first week. But God's people's love for him has grown cold. And they seem not to be excited about his covenant, but they want something else. And they seem not to be excited about the worship of him. And so this is the context in which Malachi is coming. Uh, Our sermon today is is a challenging one. It's a challenging text, but turn with me there to page 676 if you're using a pew Bible. There's a bulletin, uh, there's a sermon outline in the, in the bulletin, and we'll read from Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, this is the you ask part, why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Please pray with me. Father, we do pray as we come to your word that you would uh, speak to us that which is true, that which is helpful, that which builds us up, and that which challenges us. Lord, we need your help to understand it and apply it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw particularly that the, faithfulness, the faithlessness of God's people was directed towards him as shown in their half-hearted, insincere worship practice and attitude. 
God's people were describing worship as a burden. They were turning up their noses at the, thing of, at the things of God. They were treating them as common and not meaningful. And as we begin this morning, we see where that God, where that leads them. Have we not all one Father, verse 10 says, did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? God's statement is that they have broken faith with one another. And so the two are connected. Their breaking faith with him in terms of worship is now connected to their breaking faith with one another in the community. God begins with a question. Aren't we all related? Don't we share a common human nature as created by God? The father that's in view here could be referring to God. That's most likely. It could be referring to Adam or to Abraham. But the logic that Malachi is using is this. Since we're all connected deeply in this covenant community... Why are we treating one another wrongly? Our common creator. We have a common status as his creation made in his image. We have a common heritage. And that should count for something in the way that we treat one another. But the prophet says that we're breaking faith. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but this phrase, this idea of breaking faith, occurs five times in these seven verses. It's the theme of our section this morning. What does it mean? The word is not a common one in Hebrew, but it means to be faithless, to lose trust, to break one's promise, to be deceitful or treacherous. The King James Version translates it with this great phrase that we have been dealing treacherously with one another. Uh, It's an interesting word. It derived its meaning probably from being related to the word for covering or garment, that which you put on the body to cover it. So over time, this gained a sort of metaphorical meaning that they were doing things undercover, that is, deceitfully or treacherously. And so the prophet's indictment is, is a strong one. It's coming to God's people saying that you're dealing wrongly with one another. You're sinning against each other. The prophet tells us that this breaking faith is expressed very clearly towards one another in verse 10. The passage also describes how this breaking of faith has a result in their coming before God. And certainly, of course, we understand how this is true. God says you can't be faithful to him if you're dealing treacherously with others in the covenant community or in the regular community, for that matter. And this kind of breaking of trust leads to the same place as half-hearted worship, doesn't it? It's interesting that verse 10 and verse 11 are telling us that, that what it, what it does is it profanes, it desecrates. That's the opposite of consecrate, to make holy. It desecrates, it makes unholy. It makes common the things of God, he says here. The result is in verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. As a result of God's, the practice of God's people, God is closing his ears to their requests. This breaking of faith with one another and making common the things of God leads to a place where they lose access to God. Their weeping and their groaning and their wailing and their pleading does not move him. He's not moved by their offerings or receiving them. The principle is that, of course, our relationships with others affect our relationship with God. Jesus said something similar. Leave your offering at the altar. If you remember your brother has something against you, and go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and worship God. It's Matthew 5, 
Of course, the second greatest commandment is connected to the first. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we recognize here in this particular time, in Malachi's day, that God is bringing this hard word to them. I'm not listening to you. Now, of course, we remember, and we see so many other places in the Bible, that God's ears are always open to the cries of his people, no matter what they've done. All throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see God responding with compassion and mercy and deliverance when his people call upon him with sincerity and repentance. So clearly the problem in Malachi's day is that the people aren't sincere. That they're not repenting, but they're weeping and wailing before him and still content to do this breaking of faith between him and between each other. God is warning his people that they can't pretend and expect him to be pleased with their offerings, right? So, there are two particular examples of this breaking faith in this passage as we see it here. First, is that the people have broken faith uh, because they've broken his commandments about marrying those who practice other religions. Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the, the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Many times repeated in the Old Testament is this idea that it's part of the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses, that Moses gave to the people at Mount Sinai, was this prohibition of taking wives from people from other nations. As far back as Jacob and Esau in the middle of Genesis, this was a problem made very clear in Deuteronomy 7.3 and many, many other passages. God's people were not supposed to take the daughters of these nations as wives for their sons, nor were they to give their daughters in marriage to sons of these nations. And the prohibitions sound to us like, they're, they're, like it's a racial or it's an ethnic issue. It's not. It's a religious issue. Of course, there wasn't really freedom of religion in the sense that we understand it in the ancient world of, of polytheism, of gods and goddesses, ethnic tribes or groups all had their own uh, deity or deities, and they worshiped them. Tribes had tribal gods. Nations had national gods. So the assumption is if you're marrying a Canaanite, then you're marrying one who worships Canaanite gods. And we know it's not a racial issue or an ethnic issue because we have so many examples in the Old Testament of people from these surrounding nations coming into Israel and being drawn in as true worshipers of the God of Israel, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, and many, many others. Some of these within the line of the kings and the Messiah. So God isn't acting like a tribal God, right? Making his people only marry those people from their own tribe. He's teaching them that who they marry is important and who they marry, who, who the person they marry worships is very important. The reason given over and over in these prohibitions in the Old Testament is that religiously mixed marriages generally draw people away from the worship of the true God and lead to apostasy. You know, it would be enough for God to say, don't do this because I told you so. But God also gives the reason. Because this is a problem and it will draw you away from me. This is an issue of, uh, it's a problem in the wandering in the wilderness. 
It's a problem in the time of the judges. It's a problem for the kings of Israel and in Judah. Think of Ahab and Jezebel. It's a big problem. Taking wives from other nations so often leads the spouse to apostasy and leads them away from the worship of the true God. We remember Solomon, right? The wisest man who ever lived, right? Got tripped up by his wives and fell into idolatry because of his wives. And so it's a really big deal. And Malachi's point here is that this is breaking faith with God. And it's so important that the people who do it, according to verse 12, should be cut off from the people. They should be excommunicated. They should be thrown out and not able to worship God if they, can, if they persist in this practice. And certainly the principle still applies today. The New Testament picks up the theme, commands that believers would only marry in the Lord. Fundamental to the idea of marriage is this idea of common priorities and that one's relationship to God would be the top on that list. And I know, of course, that God can do redemptive things in leading an unbelieving spouse to himself through a believing spouse. My aunt tells that story, a wonderful story of how uh, my uncle came to faith a number of years into their marriage. He's now a, a leader in their church and a wonderful, has a wonderful testimony of what God did. And I know some of you could tell us very similar stories. I know some of you are also praying for your spouses and continuing to wait for God to do that kind of thing. And don't give up hope, of course. Continue to ask the Lord to work. The bigger principle, the, the principle is God can do redemptive things, of course. But the idea is that the opposite is perhaps more common. That a believing spouse is led away from God when marrying an unbeliever. And so, youth, adults, single people among us, this is God's commandment for us. It's for your good. It's to save you from heartache and even worse, to keep you close to God is the reason that God gives this commandment. That's the first kind of breaking faith, the marrying those from other religions. The second kind we see is that of divorce, verse 14. You ask, why? Why is God no longer accepting our offerings? Why is God not pleased with us? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Divorce is a difficult subject, of course, to talk about. It's important to teach faithfully God's word. In some ways, it's, I wish this part weren't in here because it's hard to talk about it. And I want to do so with sensitivity. I ran across, across this quote from John Stott. John Stott, of course, was uh, a great commentator of the Bible and great teacher for much of the 20th century as he's writing a book on the Sermon on the Mount, it comes to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 about divorce, and this is what Stott writes. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which t touches people's emotions at a deep level. 
There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the denigration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Though I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and I write on. We also take courage in our hands and try to tackle these verses because we believe that God's word is true and that it's good for us. And we need to hear what he says. According to what we find in Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah, who were probably contemporaries, the issue of divorce was a huge problem in these decades in ancient Israel. And the impression that these verses give us is specifically the practice of husbands divorcing and sending away their wives. And in the ancient world, this was a particular hardship for the wife, forcing her out into the world without a protector and likely forcing her into poverty. Perhaps even to make things worse, these two practices of breaking faith were connected. That husbands in Israel were divorcing and sending away their Israelite wives of their youth and then marrying and taking new wives from among the other nations who worshipped other gods. We're sort of speculating here, but as you kind of read between the lines in these three prophets, we get this idea of why was divorce so rampant in the time, well, that might have become the practice that men were divorcing the wife of their youth and then marrying others. And God says, this is breaking faith. This is dealing treacherously. This is wrong. The ancient code of Hammurabi, you know, laws from the 17th century BC in Babylonia kind of became a basis for much of human law giving. He established this idea that marriage is a legal contract, but marriage in Israel went beyond a legal contract, right? It was a covenant made before God. And so that's what God is saying here in verse 14. God is a witness. And God says, my intent for marriage was a lifelong covenant between man and wife. And there, these are serious promises only to be broken in rare and difficult cases. And so a husband trading in a wife for another is a very serious matter. So this is a, you know, so we see this is a specific kind of divorce that's happening here and has some parallels in our society and, and also some differences. As we continue in the verse, we find that verses 15 and 16 are some of the most difficult to interpret and understand in all of the Old Testament. Again, another reason not to preach on this passage. Um, if you have different English translations, they may read different, very differently from one another. So it seems that something was lost in transmission or something has been obscured in our text. Difficulties abound as we try to make sense of it. Books and articles are written about what is, what is Malachi and God trying to say here. Um, the point is, that if we can boil it down a bit, God has blessed marriage and says that it has a unifying aspect, that it's a making of one, making of the two into one, and so don't break faith. That's part of why it's this treacherous dealing. If we look at verse 16, the NIV says, you know, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Um, The ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, says something like this, the man who hates his wife and divorces her 
covers his garment with wrongdoing. I kind of prefer that one. It's a little hard to decide. But, but that paints the picture that these kind of divorce practices are like violence. In a similar way that Jesus says that your anger is like murder. And that your lust is like adultery. You get this idea, right, that there's a picture being painted here of what is happening is like doing violence to one another. And it's covering you, it's staining you, engaged in these practices. In either case, or whatever, however we make sense of these verses, we get one of the strongest expressions in all of the Old Testament, that divorce is not God's intent for his people in most cases. God's desire is that we look more and more like him, faithful to our covenants, living lives of sacrifice for the good of others, forgiving and being forgiven, trusting him when things are difficult, working hard to keep our promises. God reminds us in verse 14 that our spouse is a partner, a companion in this life, which is a gift from him. So these men of Israel who were divorcing their wives were forsaking their partner. They were sending her out unprotected into poverty. And God's saying, that's very offensive to me. And it's offensive to the very nature of justice. So it's important for us to understand what was happening in Malachi's day and the principle behind it as we try to apply it in our context this morning. Certainly there are divorces in our our day which are parallel to this situation, the sending away of a wife and sort of trading her in for another. But most are not so straightforward. And the subject, of course, is complex, and every situation is different, and the issue, as Stott says, has touched many of our lives very deeply. The Bible teaches that there are grounds for divorce described by Jesus in certain cases in which the covenant of marriage has been hopelessly broken. And we also know that God can do redemptive and healing and restoring works in our lives after divorce, and that God forgives the sin of divorce as he forgives every sin as we confess it to him in sincerity. And I want you all to know those things. Because the gospel comes to us in this exact place, doesn't it? And it teaches us, divorced or not, that we have been and will be unfaithful to God and unfaithful to one another. And the gospel tells us that we're not faithful enough and we can never be and that we all have broken faith and we all have dealt treacherously with one another. And we must confess our need for someone to change us. And that someone has promised to do that. And Jesus is faithful, and he will be faithful to all of his people all of the time. We remind ourselves of the grace of the gospel. We also understand that the grace of the gospel does not give us license to break faith. That God is concerned about the problem of divorce in this day, and I would submit to you in our day, that the church in America should be concerned about it. According to some statistics, the divorce rate among churchgoers is identical to or actually higher than the divorce rate of the U.S. population in general. There may be complicated reasons for this sociological fact, including the idea that Christians are actually more likely to get married in the first place. But regardless of the statistics, our culture is pushing us towards divorce as a ready option. Our culture tells you that what you ultimately need to do is what's best for you. That it's probably mostly the other person's fault. That you just can't get along. That you can't move through this. That you won't change and they won't change. 
Our culture tells you that you need to pursue your own happiness. Our culture tells you that the grass is greener on the other side. And because our culture has devalued marriage and elevated the individual to the highest place, it's created this sense that faithfulness is unattainable and that keeping our promises will cost us too much. And now again, there are cases in which divorce is tragically the best option or a biblical option. But aside from those cases, God calls us to these things. He calls us to costly faithfulness in marriage. He calls us to keeping our promises, even when it's really hard. He calls us to seek the best for the other person. He calls us to trust that he's at work in us and in our spouse. And marriage points out our flaws more than almost anything, and it, almost point, and it also points us to the reality of a coming redemption that's so complete that everything will be fixed. Because the biblical picture of marriage is Christ and his bride, of a faithful husband who gives his life for the church and will make her spotless and pure and perfect one day. Our passage ends here with a command. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. If any of you here today are contemplating divorce, if you've been toying with an exit strategy or feeling like you must give up, carefully consider these words today. Remember that marriage is more than just a relationship with a person so sinful that they're almost unredeemable. Right? Marriage is pointing to a deeper reality, and God has made promises, and God has the ability to do amazing things in the lives and the marriages of his people. So Malachi says, guard your spirit. Hold on tightly to the promises of God. Protect your mind from following the path of the culture. And ask God for his grace. I'm going to end with a story, not a story of faithlessness, but a story of faithfulness. Some of you may have heard it before, the story of Robertson McQuilkin and his wife Muriel. They were married in 1948. They raised six children, serving God in a variety of places, in, uh, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1968, Robertson McQuilkin became the president of what is now Columbia International University, a Christian uh, university in, in Columbia, South Carolina, one that has a vibrant missions and biblical program. He had a great ministry, teaching, leading, writing, and speaking. He was the president of the college for then for many years. She had a vibrant ministry, hosting a Christian radio program, speaking at conferences and events. In the early 1980s, Muriel began to have increasing problems with her memory and eventually was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. The disease progressed until 1990 when it kind of came to a crisis level. That the school needed Robertson McQuilkin 100% and Muriel needed Robertson McQuilkin 100%. When he resigned from his post to care for her full-time, as he did for the next 12 years. He wrote this. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago, when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health, and until death do us part. And so he did for the next 12-plus years, and in the process, 
his ministry was transformed. As this story became known, as he began to write about what it was like for him to care for her and love her and to walk with her through this difficult thing, it resonated, of course, with people. And so he wrote a book, and, and a whole new avenue of ministry became open to him as he was her full-time caregiver, and God has touched many lives through this story. May we also be people in whom God is growing faithfulness and promise-keeping and integrity. Let us not break faith with God or one another. Let us guard our spirit and trust in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your words, and we ask that you would lead us as we seek to follow you. Do work in us that we can't do, that is profound in its depth, and that makes us able to keep promises that we otherwise would not. Lord, protect the marriages in our church. Lord, guide and direct us. And Lord, we, we need your help. We pray that these words would, would be meaningful to us, and that we would hold on and cling tightly to you, and that we would love one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.